Well, good morning. I want to just, first of all, uh, dismiss the middle school before I forget. You have a class right now in the foyer, so if you want to just join your teacher out there, that'd be great. Also, let's just stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm sure this morning that there are many of you that say, Pastor, there are things that I'm concerned about. All around our world, you know, uh, we're, we're in contact with India. They've had monsoons, flooding, all kinds of challenges there. And I want to just express gratitude. Our church has actually given very substantially to India through this whole COVID-19 experience. Thank you for your generosity. Without even asking, people are still giving to Africa, uh, India, and uh, that just tells me a lot about your hearts. And so just want to commend you for doing that. Let's pray. How many here you have a need in your life right now or you're concerned about a situation? Just an uplifted hand. Yeah, there's quite a few of us, right? Uh, let's pray this morning that God would move supernaturally. I was praying this morning. We had an amazing time. There were 16 of us uh, praying for an hour this morning for the services, and we were in agreement. We believe God's going to do supernatural things, and that was my prayer this morning really early, that God would do supernatural things in the hearts. You know, I, I believe that in every service, as people are viewing or people are participating here, miracles can be happening. Do you know you could be just sitting here and God could heal your body? You know, that's true. You know, that can happen. And I, and I also believe that God wants to open hearts. He wants to heal woundedness in our spirit. He wants to correct things in our lives that are causing us, unbeknownst to ourselves, maybe brokenness and grief. He wants to set his captives free. He wants to give us beauty uh, instead of brokenness in our lives. Isn't that true? He wants to restore. God is in the restoration business. He wants to renew. He wants to revive. And let's pray that way this morning. So Father, I want to thank you that you are amazing. You are an incredible, gracious, loving God. And, and your word declares to us that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, this is a new day. And we're praying for new mercies today. And all of our hands that were up, Lord, suggesting, Lord, the great needs in our community, in our world today, in our personal lives. Lord, you're the one who hears our cry. We can now lay these burdens at your feet. We don't have to walk alone. We can lay them at your feet, Father, and watch how you are going to answer those requests Lord, in such a marvelous way, we just trust you right now. We're entrusting uh, our afflictions. We're entrusting our financial pressures. We're entrusting relational tensions and difficulties, Lord. And we're thanking you, Father, that you are answering prayer. We see that every week, beautiful answers to prayer. And we thank you for that, Father. And we're believing again today that you're going to do supernatural work in our hearts as we're listening to your word. May you do a profound work delivering us from our anxieties, delivering us from our insecurities, delivering us from our fears, and help us to have a newfound confidence in you that we've never had before. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Can you tell Patty's influencing me on my sermon titles? Ah, uh, what music are you dancing to? Will Durant said, from barbarism to civilization requires a century, but from civilization to barbarism needs but a day. Well, what was he basically saying? It takes a lot to build something wonderful. It doesn't take very much to destroy things. Isn't that true? And we know that that's true. It's easier to destroy than build a meaningful life. Charles Colson in his book, um, how Now Shall We Live writes, the drama of history is played out along the frontiers of great belief systems as they ebb and they flow. The conflict of our day is theism versus naturalism. You know, theism is the belief that there's a transcendent, and I added, I, Charles Colson didn't say this, but it's a personal God, that we believe there's a personal God who created the universe. Naturalism is the belief that natural causes alone are sufficient to explain everything that exists. What are they doing? They're exiting God out of the equation. They've eliminated God from their thinking, so everything now is under the sun. It's all left to human beings to handle all the challenges of life. Boy, do we ever make a mess of things. Isn't that the truth? You know... 
Is ultimate reality God or is the ultimate reality the cosmos? Is there a supernatural realm or is nature all that exists? This is a battle that's going on, an ideological battle that's happening in our world today. Has God spoken and revealed his truth to us or is truth something we have to find, even invent for ourselves? In other words, is it my truth and your truth and it's all different truth or is there an absolute truth? And I believe there is. Is there a purpose to our lives or are we cosmic accidents emerging from the slime? I mean, basically, you know, you either believe that God created the world or the world was evolving, you know, randomly. I mean, that's just the two options. Isn't that interesting? And however you believe is going to affect your lives. The Judeo-Christian ethic believes that God spoke an absolute and unchanging standard based upon his holy character and his moral law, which ultimately has significant consequences. But when a culture rejects God, we become very pragmatic. As a matter of fact, we're utilitarian in our viewpoint to life. We make decisions which seems to work best at the moment, but have no significant understanding of long-term ramifications to those situations. And so basically, we see then that what we believe about life well, I didn't, I didn't say that. Well, it's, that's okay. We see then that what we believe about life defines who we become and what we do. How many see what I'm saying? What we believe defines what we're going to become. And it defines the decisions we're going to make. It defines our choices. It defines how we're going to live out our lives. And that's simply the music that we're dancing to. Your viewpoint of life is your music. And if God is in your life, you're dancing to a different song than if God is not in your life. It makes a big difference. The, view, the music is our worldview, the big picture of life, which helps us answer the criti critical questions of life. Where did we come from? Who are we? Why are we here? What's wrong with our world? What can fix it? Where are we headed? These questions help us fix our purpose and discover meaning to this life. And in Proverbs 21, which I began last week, but I only focused on one point, this week I want to continue and point out that there were literally three powerful concepts in that chapter. And so I kind of focused in on basically last week the actions and consequences to those who actually had a worldview that excluded God. They were the morally deficient. They had no fear of God in their eyes. But today we're going to look at something I think is far more interesting, and the fact that God is the one who's ultimately in control of human affairs, not humanity, and how the righteous act and the outcomes of being obedient to that knowledge. In other words, what we're going to look at is the sovereignty of God and our response to it. So as I say, our view of life as some would call it, our worldview determines the choices we're about to make. You know, atheists see humanity as the ultimate source of authority. Isn't that true? Because God's not in the equation. However, if we know God and revere him, it will motivate us and transform us and our thinking to make the right kind of choices in our lives. And people of faith see life through a different lens. How many know that's true? You know, you and I are looking at things so differently. And by the way, how you see things is shaped by your perceptions and your perspective and your, you know, your worldview, basically. And so in chapter 21 here, let's take a look at these beautiful concepts. And I'm going to take a look at this, these two aspects of wisdom. First of all, we need to embrace the authority and sovereignty of God. That's a worldview. And that's the one that, you know, as Christians, we're embracing. That's the biblical understanding. It's not so much what we say, but how we live that truly reveals if we believe God or not, okay? So a lot of times we'll say things like, I believe in God, but then we'll live like we don't. You know what I mean? We're almost like, you know, practical atheists. You know, we're saying one thing, but we're acting in a totally different way. And I want to just kind of help us move past our fears for a minute. I, I think people are living today with a lot of insecurity, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of fear. But I'm hoping at the end of this message that you're going to be able to push all those things aside. How many would like to be delivered from anxiety, insecurity, and fear? Anybody here wants to be delivered from those things? Okay, so let's take a look at how we can get there. And I think we, we're going to see it. First of all, 
When we understand that God is in control of everything, we really grasp that. We really understand that. We really see it. And it no longer totally depends on you, but rather on God. How many can take a deep sigh of, I'm so glad God's in the, leading the ship. You know what I mean? Because a lot of us, we're kind of navigating our boats ourselves. But, you know, I want to just point out something. God is actually the one who's navigating. And once you understand that, you can say, oh, I can just be part of the crew now. I can start relaxing. It's not all on me. The pressure of life is on God, and I'm just part of the crew now. And I can, if there's a problem, I know who to turn to. I don't have to, you know, blame somebody else for what's going on. I don't have to get upset with myself. I can look to God and say, hey, here's the problems that we're experiencing. So that's why I think worldview is so important. I mean, in other words, is God in control of life, or are we living through random uh, chance? Is that what's going on here? The wisdom writers show us that ultimately God is working out his purposes even though there are situations and circumstances that will be challenging to us. The wisdom writers give an assurance that God is working through human agency even though at times those individuals are in a position of leadership seeming to believe, not believing in God, not understanding God's values, but in spite of all of that, God is still working in and through their lives. I mean, that's an amazing thought. And we're going to take a look at that here in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. Listen, it says, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Now, that's a, that verse alone, if you just meditated on that, that would really encourage you. And I'll try to unpack it for you real quickly here. Derek Kidner says, When we look at the streams that he channels, it's really the irrigation stream. Now, you have to remember, Israel came out of Egypt. Egypt was really fertilizing their agricultural economy through the Nile, and they would build irrigation uh, channels to move the water to the fields that they wanted to have, you know, irrigated. Now, just want you to think about what he's saying here. He's basically saying that the king is actually being controlled by the hand of God, and he moves his heart in order to channel his blessings to people that please God. How many kind of like that? I actually kind of like that text. And uh, I think we have to understand that the reason why this, these streams of water that he channels are actually blessings that he's bringing to us is think about it. You're living in an arid climate. The biggest thing about Israel is lack of water. And so if you're bringing water, you're bringing life. And so what he's saying here is that God is actually going to move through these people to bring blessing and life and uh, sustenance to the people that God is pleased with. Now, I put down God uses non-covenant leaders. That means the ungodly. That's a nice way of saying it, right? As instruments to bring blessings to his people. And probably one of the greatest examples from history that I could just pull up really quickly and show you is Cyrus, the Persian king who God raised up to bless his people. Look what Isaiah 45, 1 says. This is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And then in verse 4, he tells you why. For the sake of, of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by, by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you did not acknowledge me. So what is he saying? He's saying, even though you didn't acknowledge me, Cyrus, even though you don't know who I am, I am doing something because I want to bless my people, Israel. Now, what's all this about, Pastor? Real simple, quick history lesson. Israel had sinned against God. God brought him into the Babylonian captivity. Check that understanding. They were there for 70 years. God says, through Jeremiah, at the end of seven years, I'm going to bring you back to your land. How did he do that? He defeated the Babylonians by the Persians. And Cyrus comes on the scene, and the Persians have a whole different understanding of how to govern the conquered people. Instead of, you know, taking them out of their lands and enculturating them with their own culture and making them lose their language and teaching them their own language and making them worship their gods, the Persians had a very small Persians were not that, there was not many Persians. So, and how do you rule a worldwide empire? Is that you expatriate everybody back to their land, help them to worship their own gods, help them to embrace their own culture, and all they have to do is tax. They receive the taxes from these people. 
Isn't that an interesting approach? And that's exactly what he did. So even though Cyrus was doing it to benefit himself, to govern this empire, God was using that whole way of thinking to bring his people back to their land to rebuild their own temple. How many think that's an amazing, amazing thing? So on the natural level, Cyrus is going, well, I'm not doing that because God's telling me to do that. But you see, the prophets go, no, that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly why you were raised up. And we read it in the book of Ezra. He says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Isn't that interesting? So he's basically saying, this is why he did it. This is why we're, we're going to do this thing. Any of his people among you who may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Who put this on Cyrus's heart? God did. Isn't that beautiful? But then God also uses wicked leaders as instruments of divine discipline. Oh, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought this was God working to do good for his people. See, I think we have a funny idea about discipline. I'm going to argue that discipline is a good thing. Because if you and I are straying and are self-destructive, God is going to do everything he can to put the brakes on our lives, to discipline our lives, and bring us back on the straight and narrow. How many think that's a loving thing to do? Rather than being destroyed, God wants to bless and I'm not going to go into all of the stories because I could talk about the Assyrians who God raised up to discipline his people from the book of Isaiah, and I could talk about the Babylonians. And in the Babylonian situation, these are all texts, I have to shorten my message. I realized yesterday how much I was actually putting together. I thought, no, oh, I could have built another whole sermon, you know. <laughs> this will be good in the blog, though. You don't know this, but I'm blogging all these sermons. But Habakkuk had a hard time with all of this. How many can appreciate, you know, you're, you're kind of looking. Let me go back here to verse 4, Habakkuk 1.4. Habakkuk was going, I don't understand, God, how you could take these Babylonians and bring them in here to discipline us. And he says, therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. So Habakkuk is making an argument with God. And he's basically saying, look at the nations and watch. And, and God's talking back to him. He says, be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that... You would not believe even if it were told you. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who will sweep across the whole earth, who sweep across the whole earth to seize the dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are lauded themselves and promote their own honor. Uh, and, and then Habakkuk goes, I don't understand why you're going to use these guys to punish us. And he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, God. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the, the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? It's a great question. He's saying, look, God, how can you use these wicked Babylonians? I mean, I know we're not good, but those guys are far worse than we are. How in the world are you using them to discipline us? And here's the simple answer. When you and I have great light... And we abuse what we know to do. God says, no, I'm going to use even the wicked to discipline you. Interesting. And so that's a, that's a very uh, interesting thought. And then let me move on here. There's no human or demonic plan that can succeed against God's purposes. Look at Proverbs 21.30. There's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Uh, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. So what is he basically reminding us here? They're communicating to us that God is in control of all of the affairs of life. He determines outcomes. And even when you and I start putting our trust in our technology, when you and I put our trust in our military might, all of these things will falter and fail because they are not what's going to sustain you. In the end, all of the plans of humanity that are against God, that are railing against God, the laws that are being created that are against God's laws, they're all going to come to nothing. In the end, they're going to come to nothing. Nothing is going to prevail over what God wants to accomplish. And that's what we need to understand. Listen to what it says in Psalm 33, 16. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is in vain as a vain hope for deliverance or a tank or a plane. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. 
Proverbs 16, 9 says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but it's the Lord that establishes their steps. So what is the point I'm driving at here? What are the wisdom writers trying to tell us? God is in control. God is sovereign. We need to understand that. So what does that really mean to my my life or your life? What does it mean right now in the midst of all of the situations we're seeing in our world today? Do you think God was surprised by COVID-19? Like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on? You know, how many know that God knew about it long before we knew? We were kind of humming along, whistling in the dark, and God goes, I'm going to get your attention as human beings. I'm just going to allow this thing to happen. And how many know it's kind of catching people up short? As a matter of fact, it's got all of the world, you know, regardless of if you agree or disagree with how people are doing things, how many know God's got our attention? Does anybody know that? And sometimes God has to do some things that seems quite severe to us to get our attention because you know what? We have an ability to ignore God as human beings. How many say that's true? And sometimes God has to allow things to come into our life to really get a hold of us. But let me move on to the second aspect. I'm going to change my second point here. I did this morning. This one fits better with what I'm trying to say. And it's simply this. Uh, The second aspect towards wisdom is our response towards God's sovereignty. In other words... How are we going to respond once we know that God has everything in control? Isn't that a great question? First of all, I got to come to the, I have to settle this issue in my soul. You know, is the whole world in his hands? Does God in control of everything? Does God know everything? Does God taking us to a, a predetermined end of time scenario? Why are we worrying? We're in his hands. So, you know, then you get people going, well, that's great. God's in control. Then I don't have to do anything. Wrong answer. You see, that's the problem. We just go from one extreme to the next. You know, the one side of the equation says everything depends on me, and we're stressed and fretting and anxious. You know, some people are over here, right? It's all depending on me. You know, we're all worked up, you know, and then I tell you today, knock it off. Be still. No, I'm God. God's in control. Okay, go. Then you get the other extreme over here that goes, well, if God's in control of everything, I don't need to do anything. I'll just put my feet up, kick back, and do nothing. That's the wrong response. Okay, so let's take a look. How should we respond knowing that God is in control of everything? What should be our response? How many know that God wants us to learn to trust him? God wants us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God wants us to mature. He wants us to mature in our understanding. God wants us to mature so that God can work in us and then God can work through us. As a matter of fact, God wants to do a lot more, in some sense, in you and me than he's currently doing in you and me. How many say that's probably true? And what I have to do is begin to cooperate and trust him and yield my life to him and say, you know what, I'm going to lay aside my agenda. Could you imagine to get up every morning and say, Lord, I'm just going to lay aside my agenda today. What is it that you want me to do today? And if I start living a life that way, what's going to really start emerging is maybe a little different life. As a matter of fact, God wants us to please him. God wants us to live a life that will honor him. Listen to what Proverbs says here. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now, I spoke a lot on this verse the other day because I focused on the more than it's better than sacrifice. But let's take a look. God wants us to do what is right and just. God wants us to do the right thing. God wants us to walk in righteousness. That's what it means to do what's right. Walk in righteousness, and he wants us to pr- pursue justice. God wants us to focus in, not just on our personalized lives. I think a lot of times in evangelical Christianity, you know, what we tend to do is focus on our personalized religion, but we disconnect it with the issues of of the hour, the social issues of the hour. I believe that's a big mistake. We need to bring both of those things in line, and you'll see why. So so what are some of the, the elements that God wants us to learn? What are some of the characteristics of the righteous? What does a life that is pleasing and acceptable to God look like? In other words, what should my response be to the fact that God is in control and I believe in him and I believe he's the creator and I believe he created me for a purpose and I believe that there's a you know, destination in mind? Well, let's take a look. First of all, I think that the righteous have to have a teachable spirit. You know, 
How many here could say to yourself, I have to keep learning every single day. I've got to keep growing as an individual every single day. It says, when a mocker is punished, simple gain wisdom. By paying attention to the wise, they get knowledge. So, who here is to gain knowledge, according to this text? Who gains wisdom? The simple. Thank you so much, Reg. That's very good. That's the right answer, the simple. Now, who are the simple? Well, that's the target audience that the wisdom writers are writing to. The simple are the uninitiated, the uninformed, the people that lack understanding. They don't have the knowledge. You know, it's primarily to younger people. I know nowadays we think the young people have all the answers, but they don't. As a matter of fact, I would even argue even the older people don't have all the answers. How's that? I would say we don't, none of us have all the answers. I think God has all the answers. And we need to go back and learn from other people who have walked with God for a long time and gained some experience. And then we need to go back into history and learn from there. And then we need to go back to the Word of God and learn what God is revealing to us so that we can gain wisdom. Let's go back to the beginning of the book for a minute. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For gaining understanding and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent or right behavior, doing what is right, just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, right? And knowledge and discretion to the young. And young doesn't necessarily mean biological youth. It can also be spiritually young and underdeveloped and immature. He's saying, look, this is what you need to learn. And here's one of the greatest concerns that I have in the church. So, so many Christians, we grab our Bibles, we start reading it, and then we take texts of Scripture and we say, yeah, God's talking to me, and we impose our agenda onto a text and, and try to back up our decisions based on what God's Word says. I'm going to give you a totally different way of approaching it. Why don't we go to the Word of God and say, what is God trying to tell us here, and how does that apply to my life? And I learn the ways of God, and then I start conforming my life to the ways of God, and yes, there will be specific times where God gives us a specific word to do things, but I believe that the general tenor of the Christian life is learning the ways of God and the principles of God. So when people come to me and go, Pastor, you know, God's telling me to do this, and it's a totally contradictory to the word of God and the ways of God. I go, no, he didn't. How's that? I'll call you on it. Well, yeah, but this is what the verse, yeah, but you're taking it out of context. That's not what that is saying, and that's not a specific word to you. Here's how you're supposed to live. Look what it says here, right? The wisdom writers are pointing out that a godly or wise person learns not only from their own mistakes, but from the mistakes of other people. In other words, hey, did you see what that guy did? And look how he's being disciplined for it. A wise person goes, don't do that, right? <clears throat> see, dumb people go, oh, I'll get away with it. A wise person goes, why would he even try that trick, Right? So we learn what to embrace and what to avoid. People who have a teachable spirit keep growing, learning, and developing. When we stop becoming teachable, we become rigid, hard, stubborn, and we suffer as a result. No, how, how moldable are you, is your soul? How, how tender is your heart? Do you have a tender heart? Do you have a teachable heart? Let me move on to the second one. The righteous have a generous spirit. Look what it says here in verse 26 of chapter 21. All day long he craves for more, He's talking about the person above who's a lazy person, but the righteous give without sparing. Okay. Now, verse 13 says, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will cry out and not be answered. So here we see the proper attitude towards those who are impoverished and struggling in life. Why are the righteous uh, generous? Because wise people realize that what they have is a gift from God. And when we become more like God, we develop in certain characteristics, one of which is generosity. When we say, Lord, I want to be more like you, God says, okay. And what is God like? He's forgiving, he's merciful, he's generous. Okay, the wise or righteous person recognizes that desire drives all of our lives. Isn't that true? Well, let's be honest. I said that last week. Your desires are driving your life. And we have to address this issue. When is enough enough? That's a good question, isn't it? You should write that one down. When is enough enough? 
Because for some of us, we just don't seem to stop. You know, we think more is better all the time, you know. And wise people learn self-control. As a matter of fact, one of the fruit or result of the work of the Spirit, which I, I equate wisdom and the work of the Spirit as simultaneous ideas, is self-control. You have to control yourself, okay? Now, I like what Dr. Longman points out here. He says, what distinguishes the righteous person from others is that these longings can be redirected. And it can, instead of just being a self-centered person, we can move and become an other-centered person. Now, how many can honestly say, I'm going to raise my hand because this is true of me. When I became a Christian, I was a very self-centered person. I got my hand up. Anybody else in that? Anybody else was a very self-centered person. It was about you and your world. It was a pretty small world, and you were at the center of it. Anybody else was at the center of their world? Was oh, the rest of you are so amazing. You got halos on. Okay, so I'm only going to speak to the people with their hands up because, you know, here's the good news for all of you that were self-centered like I was. Over time, as you're yielding to God, God's spirit is beginning to control your life. You're becoming less focused on yourself and more focused on others. And as that is happening, you're becoming freer and freer and freer. Isn't that an amazing thought? And actually, you're getting happier and happier and happier. The most miserable people on the planet are totally absorbed with themselves. It's getting real quiet in here. It says, the righteous do not hesitate to share their wealth. It's not a matter of meeting one's own desires, which he puts down, which never ends, and then become generous. I think you have to learn to become generous right where you're at. Yes. And that's how you break out of uh, who you are. You start practicing generosity, and it frees you. Okay. You know what I notice? Many times it's the poor people are the most generous. They usually give out of, their, out of their own necessity, and it's moving when they do that. It's just amazing, and I see that all the time. The righteous person does what is right and rejoices in, in it. Verse 15 says, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. So how many know that in our world today, we don't want, you know, the culture, the prevailing culture, by the way, doesn't want justice, Right? But the righteous do, you know, and it says so right here. The righteous rejoices in doing what's right and seeing right done for others. Justice is important to God. As a matter of fact, the prophets were constantly challenging the people of God on the issue of justice towards others. And I think one of the great dangers of a personalized faith is that the focus becomes self-focused on ourselves while ignoring the larger social justice issues of our day. Isaiah had some very scathing words in his generation. Look what he says. He says, for day after day they seek me out. He's talking about the people of God here. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. I would say that's true of the evangelical church in North America. today. This is describing it perfectly. But then he goes on to say, but why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it. In other words, what's the benefit of depriving ourselves and we don't see any positive results? Because you know what's happening? Pragmatism steps in then. We've become very pragmatic. If we don't get results, we don't do it. You say, why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. So God's saying, you know what? Yeah, you may be doing the spiritual thing, but this is what I'm having a problem with. He's saying, you're still doing injustice. And then he goes on, you fat, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be unheard on high. So in other words, you can do a spiritual activity, but if you have injustice in the way you're treating people, God says, what good is this? You're inconsistent. This is what I'm concerned about over here, how you treat people. As a matter of fact, Jesus summarized the law this way, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second and great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Wow, that's powerful. Jesus is saying, are you doing that? And that's what the prophets were calling attention to. And then he says, is, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now, how many get a sense when I read this text, it's almost picking up on Matthew 25 where Jesus is talking about, you know, helping those that are poor, those that are in prison, those that are sick. What does he say? If you go visit these people, the people that are suffering many times, and sometimes it's out of an unjust system, and, we're, and we need to do something about it. And you know, if you study the system, not everybody that goes to jail was necessarily rightfully accused. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest. There's a lot of injustice in our world, but when you and I go in the name of Jesus, I'm not saying they're all there because they were good, but I'm just saying some have been sentenced unfairly, right? And sometimes they've been given far harsher uh, sentencing, and we have a system of law, not justice. And so if you have a lot of money, sometimes you can get off a lot easier than the person who's very poor, and they'd have nobody to defend them, and they end up getting blamed for things that's not even totally the whole story. Come on, let's be fair about this. And you and I go to the prison and we visit them. Jesus said this, when you do that, you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. Isn't that powerful? Where's Jesus coming up with this stuff? Right here in Isaiah, he's bringing that out. And then it says here, the righteous or wise person prepares for the future. You know, you're not just living in the moment. As a matter of fact, it says, whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. (laughs) You know, we read this and we go, what's what's he really trying to tell us here? He's basically saying that one of the great problems of of our day is the unwise use of credit. I'm going to apply it now. If we live an overindulgent life, living above our means, what happens? We're going to suffer. The wise then have the foresight and prudence to be self-controlled, to live within their means. How will my actions impact the future? How am I going to provide for the day when I'm not able to physically work? Maybe I have neither the physical capacity or the mental capacity. I'm just infirmed. You know, what's, what's he saying? Are we preparing for a rainy day? As a culture, generally, we're in the moment. What's true in the realm of money is even more evident in how we spend our lives. How are you investing yourself? Are you enriching others and thereby enriching your life? Are you learning to curb your own appetites and learning to be a wise person? And then the righteous have the right goals in their, in, for their lives and mind. Listen to this one. I love this. Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Richard Clifford says it so beautifully. The Hebrew word to pursue is strong, conveying energy and determination at times having the sense to hunt down. So how many get a sense here that you're actually after this? You're, it's almost like you know, you're on the hunt. You know, you're, you're out going after a deer in, in uh, hunting season, and you're hunting. You're hunting this down. There's, a, there's an intentionality to this. How many can see the difference between the person, well, God's sovereign, I don't need to do anything. Here, I'm reading over here, it says, hunt this stuff down. Are you getting a sense that there's a little bit of energy required, a little effort required? As a matter of fact, when I read the book of Peter, he says, add to your faith knowledge and to your knowledge self-control. And then he goes on, talks about brotherly love and all these other things. I'm going, wow, you know, this is not, you know, you're saved by your good works, but it's God saying, don't sit on your duff and do nothing. He's saying, make an effort, grow in your walk with God. In this saying, the intense pursuit comes upon something other than the original object of the pursuit, long and vigorous life and honor. Life and honor come from the pursuit of virtue. Now, let's just unpack this for a moment. What are you saying, Pastor? Well, take a look what he's saying. Whoever pursues righteousness and love gets life, prosperity, and honor. You don't pursue life, prosperity, and honor. You pursue righteousness and love. So if I was to ask the average person right now in North America, what is your aim in life? What do you think the answer is going to be? Well, yeah, money, that could be it. No, but I don't even think that's money. That's just the means. You know what I think most people want? Happiness. I want to be happy. How many say that's probably the, what, deep down inside, people want to be happy. What do you think? Okay. And for some people, they think power is happiness. Some people, they think wealth is happiness. I I see what I mean by means. So you're right, but it's a means. I think deep down inside, people want to be respected because they think it'll bring them happiness. They think they'll be happy. 
I think happiness is what people are searching for. It's interesting to me that if you want to find happiness, then I think we need to go to the ultimate wisdom teacher. You say, well, who's that? Jesus, of course. And now watch what Jesus does. I mean, think about what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. You come to the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous part of the Sermon on the Mount is what? Anybody know? The Beatitudes, that's the right answer. I mean, people love the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes, it starts like, blessed are the poor in spirit. But that word blessed could be translated happy are. Okay, blessed and happy, simultaneous, interchangeable idea. So if you want to be happy, Jesus says, be poor in spirit. Now, how many think it doesn't seem to make sense? It's almost a, what do you call uh, an oxymoron, right? It's almost the opposite. It's the opposite thinking. If I want to be happy, I need to be poor. If I want to be happy, I need to mourn. If I want to be happy, I need to pursue righteousness. Well, this is such an interesting list, right? Isn't that, how many think that's interesting? He's saying happiness comes by pursuing something other than happiness. But most people think, no, I'm pursuing happiness. And they think that by pursuing this and this and this, they're going to get happiness. I'm going, no, no. Jesus tells you. He says, blessed are those who uh, seek, uh, you know, hunger after righteousness. They shall be filled. you got to hunger in order to be filled. Now, think about all the ones he's saying here. He says, here's what you need to know. The blessed are happy people are those who recognize their poverty, but in this case, it's not material poverty. It's spiritual poverty. They're mourning, but not over the loss of a loved one. They're mourning over their own sinfulness. They're, uh, they're the people who are they're content, basically, with what God's given them. They're, they're hungering after what's right. You know, They're hungering for what's right. They're showing mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In other words, we're hungering to show mercy to others. We're pursuing after the ability to do these things to others. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. These are the people that are going to experience God's kingdom. They're going to experience comfort. They're going to experience fullness. They're going to experience mercy. They're going to have the ability to experience God. And let me tell you something. In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. That's that's, that's the ultimate, to have joy. And joy is even happiness many times is determined on circumstances and situations. I'm, I'm happy when things are good and I'm sad when things are bad. But joy transcends or goes beyond my external circumstances. I can actually be experiencing very negative things in my life, but I can still have joy. You say, why can I have joy? Because if I have the presence of the living God, I have joy in my heart. So even though there's a tear in my eye, there's a, a joy in my spirit. I'm still rejoicing in my spirit, okay? And then finally, the righteous have moral courage and strength to address the power of the wicked. You know, this is probably one of the greatest needs right now in this hour. We lack courage. I think the church, for the most part, North America, is discouraged. I think we feel like we're on the defensive. We feel like we're in a minority position and, you know, everything's caving in and, you know, we're not making a difference and no one's paying attention to us and we're being mocked and scorned and ridiculed and all the rest of it. Isn't that true? But can I just encourage us? Listen to what it says in this proverb. One who is wise can go up against the city of the mighty and pull down the strongholds in which they trust. What's he saying here? Well, again, I'll quote Richard Clifford because he says it so beautifully. He says, to go up is a Hebrew idiom or an expression of speech for mounting a military assault and to bring down is an idiom for defeating an enemy. So what is he saying? He's basically saying wisdom is more advantageous than strength. Wisdom, to live right, is, is a better advantage than all the power in the world. Isn't that amazing? And this is reflected throughout the scripture. I love what uh, the prophet Zechariah says. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? This is figurative language. Before Zerubbabel, you become level ground. 
What mountains are in your life right now? I'm not talking about, you know, the Rockies here. I'm talking about the things that seem insurmountable to you. The things that seem to be pushing and you feel like there's no way you can go through this situation. You feel defeated and you feel discouraged and you feel despair because of these mountains. But it's not by might or power. God says it's by my what? It's by my spirit, says the Lord, that these mountains will be leveled. Oh, let me go. I got to give you another illustration because, you know, you guys aren't catching that. So let me, let me go for another, another element so that you can really get excited. Now, how many know in the Bible when they start describing physical attributes in the Old Testament of someone, it's because the writer wants to make a point. And the person that's got the most uh, description of any physical attribute in the entire Old Testament is a giant by the name of Goliath. Isn't that amazing? You go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and you have this amazing description of this giant, and he is one big dude. And I'm going to just tell you that right now, that King Saul and all the Israelites, they were, they were intimidated. They were terrorized. They couldn't even do anything. He's taunting them. They're there for 40 days, which speaks of a complete level of crisis and the duration of difficulty. And they were like, they were just... They didn't know what to do. Isn't it amazing? David comes along. He's just kind of whistling. Hey, Dad, Jesse, Father Jesse says to little younger son, David, hey, go down there and see how your brothers are doing fighting the Philistines. Oh, by the way, bring some food for them and, you know, bless their captain. And David whistles along. And he comes on the scene, and here's this giant on the other side of the hillside shouting all of these obscenities and all kinds of nonsense. And David's going, what in the world is going on here? Isn't that an amazing story? You know? And, and these guys are, nobody wants to fight this guy because he's their champion and Israel can't find a champion. Nobody has heart. Nobody's got courage. And David goes, what's the problem? I'll go fight him. Oh man, his older brother alive says, just like David, hotshot David. He thinks he can do anything. Do you know what the deal was with David? He was anointed by God. The Spirit of God had come upon David. The Spirit of God had come upon David, he defeated a lion. The Spirit of God came on David, defeated a bear. The Spirit of God was on David. He says to King Saul, I'll go fight this guy, and God will deliver him into my hands. God will do this. Where was David's focus? God. Let me just give you these verses. So David says to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I'm coming against you in what? In the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Listen, you turkey. You're messing with the wrong God. Because you see, in the ancient world, everybody understood the armies that won was because their God was greater. David said, our God is the great God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. There's no God. All of your other guys are worshiping who knows what, you know, but this, they're not gods. He said, you've defied the ultimate God. You're in trouble, Goliath. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Wow. That's pretty good. I'll do that. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Why is David doing this? For the honor of God. God is being dishonored right now. God is being dishonored right now. David says, for God's honor, I'm going to step out and totally commit myself to a course of action. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. How many of that's impressive? Is anybody impressed with this? Isn't that amazing? What did I say earlier? No army can fight against God. Not going to work. And you know, when people walk along and they have their own thoughts and it's against God's value system, we can walk up to it and say, I stand up in the name of the Lord. And if we're honoring God, that's going to have to stop. I don't know about you, but that's pretty impressive. Let me close. What music are you dancing to? In other words, what's your worldview? Do you see God as really in control? Or do you think it all depends on you? 
Do you see, you know, the fact that once you understand that God's fully in control, that you and I can't just kick back and do nothing? And we have to step up to the plate and say, God, what are you calling me to do in this generation? Are there not things to be addressed in this generation? Come on now, are there not things to be addressed in this generation? Where are the Davids? Where are the Davids? Who say, not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit, God, I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. Let's stand. Hallelujah. How many here say, Pastor, I want to have a higher view of God? I want to get in step with his agenda. I want to dance to his music. I want to see things the way God sees them. I want to have courage. I want to have a teachable spirit. I want to walk in wisdom. I want to keep growing. I want to think ahead. I want to let God be the one that's ruling and reigning over my life. I pray not my will be done, but your will be done. Not my agenda, your agenda. You know, whose kingdom are we working on? Let me tell you something. When we're in step with God, it's amazing what God can do. I, I believe that most of us, our vision's way too small. Did you just hear me? For most of us, we're looking at what we can do. And that's why we end up doing what only we can do. I want to pray today as a congregation, and I want to pray for you as an individual that you and I will look up and say, I want to do what only you can do. I want to be in cooperation with your game plan. I want to be one of your instruments in this world. I want to be a David in this generation. I want to have that kind of a courageous spirit. I want to have heart in the midst of a world that's, I'm going to say it, gutless and heartless. Isn't that what we are right now? That's where we are, folks. But I don't want to be like that. When there's a battle to be fought, I don't want to be running away. I'm going to be running to but I want to do God's purposes. It's not about us. It's about him. See, David was there to honor God. Remember last week when I was preaching, remember David said, who am I? See how humble he was? Who am I, oh God, that you would choose me? That's pretty humbling, isn't it? But God will choose you if you will give him everything you are. How many here are saying, you know, Pastor, that's, I, I, I want to respond. I want God to use my life. I want it all holes barred off. Let's do it. Okay, God, here's my life. Whatever you want with it, I just give it to you right now. I have no idea where you're going to take me, what the journey's going to look like. I'm not saying it's always going to be easy, but I'm going to tell you God's going to use you in a very powerful way, way beyond with anything you could ever think, ask, or imagine. So, Lord, that's my prayer for us as a congregation. That's my prayer for us individually, that we will become courageous, that we will become fearless, that we will be full of wisdom, that we will be teachable. Lord, that we will be growing, that we will be uh, prudent. That's another word to describe what you want us to become like, that we will learn, Lord, to, to, um, to be self-controlled and that it won't be about us. It'll be about you. Lord, I pray right now that all anxiety, all insecurity, and all fear will be stripped from our soul. And I pray in its place will come a quiet confidence in your sovereign control over our world. Help us to have a vision that the whole world is in your hands and that you're bringing this world to a, a, a purpose and a destiny. When we read Revelation, Lord, we, we recognize the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today.